Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Glad you're with us. Glad that uh, you could make time today. We appreciate it and grateful to have you with us as we continue through the book of Exodus, the 33rd chapter. Um, really interesting text yesterday, kind of working out the ongoing relationship between God and the people now that there has been this uh, break of faithfulness, this, this kind of um, idolatry on behalf of the people. And that has changed to some extent the relationship, not the promises, not the faithfulness of God, but it has uh, it has put a damper on things. And um, I I think we, in some ways, kind of leave that behind at least for a moment, and then we actually jump back into it. So let's go through this first part, uh, verse seven here, chapter thirty three. Now Moses used to take the seat and pitch it outside. I'm sorry, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, the people would rise and stand, each of them at the entrance of their own tents, and watch Moses until he had gone in. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance, all the people would rise and bow down, all of them at the entrance of their own tent. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then he would return to the camp, but his young assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, would not leave the tent. Um, This is interesting, Michael. I I think um, we've not had... We've had lots of instances throughout this book where God and Moses have interacted, but we haven't gotten a lot of insight into sort of how that happens and and particularly the nature of their relationship. We haven't revisited that a while for a while in the text. And I think, you know, here we see this idea. There's a spot outside of the camp. You might remember that yesterday that God said, I'm not going to be immediately with you. Moses would set up this tent. He'd go out if there was questions, if there was discernment that needed to happen. And as a sign of God's presence, the cloud would descend, and Moses would be in there. Evidently, Joshua is also in there. And the people are aware of this cycle. Each and every time it happens, they go to the entrance of their own tent. You know, the the image that comes to mind is in the spring when we have bad weather and you see everyone standing out on their porch, right? I mean, they, they know something is happening. They're aware of it. They're, they wait for it. And here it says they bow down. And this is about as uh, this is about the best scene we've seen in a while of the people showing reverence and faithfulness and of Moses' own interaction with God. And it would be it would be nice to be able to sort of peek inside that tent, and maybe we do get a, a short look at that in our next passage. But I, I think this is um, – this feels, after what we've been through, this kind of feels like a little bit of a weight being lifted. There's almost a sense of taking your breath here, I think. Now, I was going to use the word reset in yeah. a soft sense. I think that the text is giving us, Clint, an opportunity to see – that God uh, is going to keep God's word. God is not going to be in the midst of the people. The separation here geographically, the idea that Moses is leaving 
the the walls. He's going outside. This isn't the tabernacle he's going to. This is an, another thing. And in the midst of that movement, there's a symbolic kind of keeping of God's promise that he's not going to be in the midst of the people. Our next section, our next uh, conversation looks at a time when Moses is kind of grappling with God uh, over, you know, uh, well, God, if you're not going to be with the people, then who is? And that's an interesting question. But suffice it to say for today, when Moses is going to have these interactions, there is a kind of returning to the patterns that we've had before. Moses is once again the intermediary. Um, in this case, he's going to have conversations with God. When he does that, supernatural, spiritual, uh, even natural forces are at play. We've seen that before, you know, the clouds on the mountain here now, the cloud that descends over the tent. Um, and, you know, Clint, I guess the only thing I really have to add here is I just think it's fascinating, this idea that at the end of this section, the language is that they would speak as one speaks to a friend face to face. That, if you know your scripture, know that that is not a common description of an encounter between humans and God. And so it does have something very substantial to say about Moses's unique relationship with God. That encounter on the mountain where the Lord was angry and Moses you know, talks God out of it in some substantial way. And then Moses comes down and then Moses is angry. And then he calls uh, for a purging of the sin in the people. All of this text that's happened here, I think we almost do see here, Clint, a moment of kind of relational reprieve where God and Moses are together. They're talking, they're communing with one another. And, you know, we'll have time at the end here to talk about Joshua, who's also kind of being introduced again in this section. But I think it's it's a striking way of describing the relationship between God and Moses. I think, you know, the word that comes to mind, Michael, is intimacy. This is a, this is a look inside the relationship of God and Moses. At the end of Deuteronomy, there's a, a short section of, of really gushing praise for Moses, and even even it doesn't go so far, I think, as to use this language. The idea, if you know a story that's coming up later in the Old Testament, Moses says to God, I, I want to see your glory, and God passes over and he says, well, you, you can't see me face to face or you would die. And yet here in this language, which I don't think we're to take literal in the sense that God has a face and that Moses and God stand, it it it. It speaks to the relationship. It speaks to Moses spent this time in the presence of God, and that God would speak to Moses candidly, openly, um, clearly. And I, that is high praise. I, I think this is one of I, – I, I can't think of many affirmations throughout the rest of the Old Testament, really, that are equal to this. There are lots of places where characters are praised. This is among, I think, the highest praise that I can think of in in the Old Testament. Um, and yes, Joshua is there, but I'm, I'm this this short sentence about Moses is really is is really impressive. Yeah, and maybe Clint, it is lost on us a little bit because in our own modern era, that language of God as friend has been far more popular than it has been historically in both the interpretation of the scriptures as well as it, at, in its use in the church. 
Of course, Christians have always looked to Jesus Christ and seen in his offer of grace and reconciliation a an invitational uh, stance towards God that we are invited by grace through faith. But here, the language of speaking face to face as one speaks to a friend is is truly a departure from the norm scripturally and certainly in the Old Testament. I mean, God is creator. God is sovereign. God is judge. We've seen that numerous times, ranging from the flooding of the earth to the conquering of opposing nations to the destruction of Egypt and the Pharaoh himself. All of these are nods to the God who's God. And so here, the relationship with Moses, and we've mentioned so many times now throughout the book of Exodus how Moses stands very much in the middle. While that has created a tenuous location for him as it relates to the people, Israel, it has also created this beautiful, deeply connectional relationship with God himself. And and that's the, the give and take. It's the mystery that exists in the middle of this story, that you have all of this conflict and tension and struggle, and yet at the same time, you have a deeper intimacy and a beautiful kind of connection. And, you know, maybe that's a way of describing a life lived as a person of faith. I mean, I think most people who have lived faith for some time have lived with that kind of tension and nuance. Yeah, and I, I really think in some ways, Michael, maybe that's the intention of this chapter, right? Um, to affirm Moses, I mentioned this passage that's coming up, that, I, that God shows Moses his glory. It, we'll, we'll probably talk about that tomorrow. It's a really interesting text. It's a, I, Again, I don't know of much like it in the Old Testament, but th- there is this focus, I think, one one of the places that we kind of dial in and clarify here is God and Moses. And as we continue here with verse 12, you know, we, we see it again. Moses said to the Lord, see, you have said to me, bring up the people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found favor in my sight. If I found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you. And find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, unless you go with us? In this way we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth. You know, uh, here we have seen a conversation like this before as the Moses and God were on the mountain and the people were down with the golden calf. Um, but th- this has a more spiritual side to it. I think this has a more devotional side to it, Michael. You, you know, I, if I let me know, I know you by name. And if you have found favor in my sight, show me your ways that I may know you. That That's the... That's sort of the heart cry of a person of faith in that moment of seeking and, and saying, Lord, I, I, I simply want to be a better follower. I want to be a better disciple. I want to better live this covenant and this faith that I'm pursuing. Show me the path. Be with me. 
I want to know that you're with me. I want to see it. I want to grow in it. I, I, it, it speaks to the deepening of relationship. And, you know, again, we see stuff like this in the Old Testament, but this is pretty flowery in, in some sense for the kind of language that the Old Testament often uses in, in regard to leadership. Uh, I, I, just, I think this is a really interesting text. The language that's probably most relational here, and in some ways maybe even outside the normal, as you're saying, Clint, is this you language. Uh, you have not let me. You said, I know you by name. You have found favor in my mm -hmm. sight. I mean, we know that the people have not found favor in God's sight. That we've seen with abundant clarity in the last few days. But here, Moses has been faithful. And if you want to look at this, Clint, from a leadership lens, Moses has done all that Moses could do. I mean, he has uh, gone up the mountain to get the tablets. He's come back down. He's tried to uh, appease the people. He's tried to feed them when they're hungry. He's tried to administrate them rightly. I mean, you can say a lot of things about Moses, and the text does not present him as a perfect individual. It does not in any way present Moses to be infallible. But that said, Moses has indeed been faithful to show up, and he has indeed stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with God for his people when he needed to do that. And I think the text, instead of showing Moses as somehow arrogant or self-centered or Moses in some way seeking his own glory or fame, I think it goes out of its way to show over and over that Moses truly cares about his people that he's been given charge of, and he truly seeks to honor God. He, at his best, he's doing both of those. And even at his worst, he's generally failing, just overemphasizing one over the other. I, I think Moses, especially when you come to texts like this, where, where he's having these kind of relational encounters with God, you have to recognize that there's something special in Moses, in his leadership, in, in his character, and it's being sort of brought to light here. Yeah, way back when we covered that story early in the book where Moses sees an Egyptian harming a Hebrew and is moved by it. And it took him a while to get back to it, but Moses seems to have fully embraced his calling to be mm -hmm. their intermediary, their leader. You know, this is really fascinating language, Michael. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. And Moses' response to that is, well, if your presence doesn't go, don't carry us up from here at all. We don't, we won't do well where you are not. We can't do these things without you. Um, how shall it be known that I've found favor or that your people have found favor unless you go with us? And so it, it's interesting that in the very moment of being promised rest, Moses turns that back into a conversation about the need for God to be with him and, by extension, be with the people to distinguish them. And it's, it's not quite Moses going so far as to remind God of the covenant. Um, I think that was more prevalent last time we saw a conversation like this. But but I think it's an undertone there. I think that is an undercurrent. And um, I, I think this is one of Moses' best moments. I, th I think both of these passages we're looking at today, we, we see 
you know, imagine what he's just been through. It, two chapters ago, he had to call people to go through the camp with swords and and kill those who wouldn't be under control. And and here Moses is getting praised for his relationship with God, speaking to God as a friend, and now advocating on behalf of the people to God that they will not succeed. They cannot live this life, this promise without him. I, I think this, this is um, a real moment of affirmation for some of Moses' leadership. Well, and when he uses this language of distinct, you'll see this in verse 16. He's not talking about like special. He's not talking about, uh, you know, having special privileges on the playground. He's talking about being distinct because of their relationship with God, that they have received yeah. the covenant. They've received this gift of uh, salvation, literally, from Egypt. And so Moses, when he talks about this, we shall be distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth, that's a statement about God. We want to be your people. We want, we want to be that distinct yeah. people who you call and you love. And by the way, this is essential information to understand the New Testament, to understand Jesus and the Pharisees and Paul and this whole image of what it means to be called by grace. This was a large part of the problem is because people always read Moses and this this heart prayer that Moses had that the people of Israel would be distinct. They would be God's people. They would be separate. So when Jesus comes and proclaims the kingdom of God has come, the Pharisees read that through a text like this. And they say, well, we're the distinct ones. We're the ones who've been given the covenant. We're the ones who have followed in Moses's way. And Jesus does something which no one had anticipated. And quite frankly, I think you could make the case the church didn't understand until Paul and Peter, and, and until there was this time of reflection and returning. So this idea of being distinct, of Moses' relationship with God, in many ways providing the pathway of what that looks like with the giving of the law, the leadership of the people. Clint, this is going to set the tone and tenor. This is going to lay out the path for the Israelites for generations, hundreds of years. And it's worth noting that we're seeing it happen in real life, right in front of us. Yeah, and I think I think you're right, Michael. Christians adopt that language. I mean, we talk about the idea, and I think different would be a, a defensible translation there, that they will stand out as different from the world around them. And what is the thing that we preach over and over again, that as Christians, it ought to be noticeable that we follow right. Christ. That ought to be something observable and something that distinguishes right. us, um, makes us distinct or different from the world around us. Not in a not in a privileged way, not in a look at us way, but that there ought to be something in the character of the Christian life in the life of faith that that strikes a different note than those who live without that at this point. And I, I think, you know, that pattern becomes really important, not just throughout the rest of the Old Testament, but I think in the whole life of the church and remains remains yeah. it's so for not only Christians, but Jews who would continue to be moved by that language as well. There's a lot here. You know, this is a text that yeah. if you were just reading quickly, you might quickly read past it. But I think that there's a lot to learn and I hope that there's been something 
that maybe encourages you to dig deeper as well. Thanks for being with us here today. We look forward to being with you. Hope you'll share this. Uh, so subscribe if you'd like to get more of it. Like it if you would uh, find it helpful so that others might find it helpful. And uh, we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.